0: So creatively inspiring. Um, 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 Radio Richard Charlie, tell me about being in New York. You know, New York has helped a lot of people's career. Just by being there, you're able to meet people. I believe you got the contact with the Four Seasons by playing in a club.
1: Yeah, I was um, about 18 years old. And uh, I was working in a club on Bloomfield Avenue in Newark. And Frankie Valley walked into the club. Now, he had had a hit record in 1956 with a group called The Four Lovers. That song was You're the Apple of My Eye. So Frankie was a relatively big star in Newark, New Jersey, which is where I'm from. It was a big deal for him to come to the club. That's how I met him.
0: And uh, he just said, hey, come on, kid.
1: Well, and when, he, when he came in, he had heard about our band, and uh, the musicians that we had in our band were all from a music and arts high school. And several of the, the kids in the band also uh, were going to college. So we were probably the best musical group uh, in Newark at that particular time. And musicians from all over the area used to come to listen to us. Now, when we were kids, we didn't know that. But when Frankie came in, he had heard about our band, and the first thing he asked was who wrote the arrangements, and I was playing accordion with the band. I had it amplified. I had heard Jimmy Smith when I was a kid, and like all good Italians, they learned how to play the accordion as a okay. youngster, and uh, I had it amplified, and it sounded pretty much like an organ. This is before they started to really modify those things. Uh, we had a really pretty good sound, and we also sang uh, like the Four Freshmen and copied a lot of the high-low stuff. Uh-huh. So um, when he heard the band, it was far above what the average band in the area was doing. So he asked the saxophone player, he said, who, who wrote the arrangement? So he said, that, that fellow over there, Charlie. So Frankie came over and he introduced himself. And I remembered him because I had seen him on the Ed Sullivan show do the hit record that he had. We wound up talking that night, and I hung out with him in his car till about 4 in the morning, just talking and listening to the things that he was into and the things that I was into. So from there, uh, we started to talk on a regular basis, and he was very instrumental in uh, bringing me to New York to introduce me to another aspect of the music business that I had never even thought about, which was recording. I've
0: read an interview with you where you said that you had some problems in the studios when you first started out getting the session players to phrase things in the way that you wanted them phrased. Now, I remember when I was starting out as an arranger, I had the same exact problems. Uh, I started a little later than you, but uh, I had the same problems. And uh, if you could just talk a little bit about that. First of all, what studios were you working in in New York? And uh, what were those problems?
1: Well, the first studio that we recorded the Four Seasons songs in was a studio called Stay Phillips. And uh, it was located in the Victoria Hotel in between 51st and 52nd on uh, 7th Avenue. Uh, The hotel is no longer there, nor is the studio, but uh, the uh, studio was off the lobby. It was easy access for anybody to get to, so we had access to just about any musician in town or in the area that, that uh, was playing on records. So originally, I started by using the guys in my band, and I quickly learned that there was a big difference between recording and having guys just play live. So when it came time to use better players, or, or players that could actually uh, enhance making the record rather than, than uh, just playing basic parts, Uh, I started to look for where I could find studio musicians, guys that were actually working in a studio on a regular basis. Now, one of the experiences I had was I had seen a recording session when I was was about 18 years old. I went to uh, Columbia Records, and I saw Mitch Miller record Tony Bennett with Count Basie's band. Wow. The singer in the band actually knew Tony Bennett, or actually knew his manager, and they invited us to the date. So I sat... Columbia Studios on 30th Street looked at that experience and I said to myself, this is what I'm going to do. It was maybe five or six years later that I was actually recording in that studio as an arranger. Now, I didn't realize, I didn't recognize it when I first went in, but then after I recorded there a couple of times, I said, this is the same studio that I, I saw Basie record at. So I had known the difference between. When Basie recorded, they brought in studio musicians, and the trumpet players were phenomenal. So I did some research from some of the records that I really liked, and I found the best players that I could find, and I started to book them. Now My father uh, was also a musician, and uh, he was booking my musicians, so I would tell him who I wanted, and he would call this uh, answering uh, service in New York. It was called Radio Registry, Now, all the recording musicians belonged to Radio Registry, so all we had to do was find out who we wanted, call them, and they would get in touch with the individual.
0: As I say, I I read that you had a little trouble getting players of, shall we say, the older generation to play the phrasing of pop music of the time.
1: Well, now I knew who the players were, and I started to use them, but I found out that the way that they phrased was exactly the way that they learned how to play music in the 40s and 50s. And here we were, the 60s generation. So it required explaining to them exactly how to play the parts. Now, there was a saxophone player who was really a genius uh, that that, uh, I had met when I was 13 years old working in clubs. And his name is George Young. George played the saxophone solo when he was 13 years old on Let's Twist Again the Chubby Checker records. And he also played uh, a bunch of solos, but he was really an exceptional saxophone player. Uh, I asked George if he wanted to start doing record dates to come in from Philly to do the dates. So he started to come in to do my dates. And while I was working with the rhythm, he'd be telling the horn players, well, let's cut this short and let's play this this way. Because George really had a better understanding about pop music. He was my age. He understood how pop music was supposed to be played. So between the two of us, what we did was we started to establish the style. For example, when we recorded the Sun Ain't Gonna Shine, the original Frankie Valley record, the instrumental was... Bah, 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 bah. And when they first ran it down, the tendency would have been play... Boo, dee, 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 dee. They would play it more, more like... Um, Uh,
0: Like a swing thing.
1: More like a swing thing. So you would have to really phrase and tell them how to put air in between the notes, where they should cut off. And eventually, after doing a series of dates for me, they started to understand my style as an arranger. And then over a period of time, then they started to at least understand the phrasing.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the Four Seasons voicing technique? I mean, I think every great vocal group has a certain voicing uh, technique that they use that gives them their particular sound, whether it's the Beatles or ABBA or the Beach Boys. Now, the the Four Seasons certainly had a a recognizable sound. And uh, I believe that in 1965, uh, you actually became not only their vocal arranger, but uh, you also became the fourth season.
1: Correct. Well, the sound of the Four Seasons was actually uh, developed by Bob Gordio and Nick Massey. And what it really was, it was chorale style. Now, on Sherry, Frankie sings a high C. Under that is Gordio singing an E, an interval of a sixth. Underneath that was another interval of a sixth, which was a G. And then Nick Massey sang the two octaves lower Frankie's part. So when they sang it, it was chorale style. Wow. So you had you had Frankie singing the top, Bob Gordio, Tommy, and and Nicky. Now when they sang it, because they weren't really great singers, it was hard to hold it in tune because there, the the harmonics that normally made them sing in tune were not readily heard by them because of the intervals. So by doubling the voices, this actually created the sound. Now you mean uh, double tracking. Double tracking. That was another thing that we, we introduced uh, into the 60s, and and uh, that was also something that was not the way they made records back in the 60s. So with making the records, uh, we had a couple of obstacles that we had overcome with the studio musicians, plus uh, with the Four Seasons. In order for us to be able to accomplish that, we had to record a certain way. We had to you know, make sure that we... Got all the music eventually back onto one track, so the background voices could be sung. Then they could be doubled. They were doubled They were they were double sound on sound. And I don't know if, when you came into the business if that was a technique that was still being used.
0: Well, I I, I sort of started recording in '69, so I, yeah. I mean, you were recording. These were four track, were they in '65 or, or yeah. were they eight track?
1: No, no. These were four track. four track. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. when I first started to work with Bob Crewe. Bob purchased the four-track that went into this one studio. This is not where the season's recorded, but he purchased the, the, the four-track so that we could actually record this way. This was around 1959. Right.
0: Wow. You've arranged so many great uh, hits of theirs. Is there any one in particular that stands out for you as being uh, the most fun to do and the most uh, rewarding for you musically?
1: Well... Because I was a jazz musician as a kid, and I went to a music and arts high school, and then I went to Manhattan School of Music, pop music was not my favorite kind of music, and I had to learn to appreciate it, which I eventually did. Yeah, you I, managed uh, it, Charlie, yeah. And and <laughs> so uh, in, in the beginning, it was very difficult for me to really get involved in the kind of music we were doing. So... Although I was the arranger on the hit records, it wasn't until we actually did "Dawn Go Away" that I felt that I had a, a major influence. You know, there were some little things that took place. For example, when we did "Candy Girl," instead of it being a one six two five, which is normally what they would play, it was a one six and then a two half diminished. And when it came time to teaching them a half diminished chord, they uh, Tommy didn't know he says either the chord is diminished or it's not how could it be only half diminished <laughs> well, it was tired well I'll explain that to my listeners <laughs> so so I mean although I was I was uh, you know writing intros and, and coming up with ideas it wasn't until we did dawn go away that I felt that we actually did a real solid piece of music hmm. the figures on it the the modulation all that was a result of me playing around with the song, and that was the first time I had any kind of flexibility because the song was a written as a folk song. It wasn't written with that gallop rhythm. Mm. And just before we, we wrote the arrangement, Frankie and I were in, were in the car listening to the radio, and he heard more, the Kai Winding record on the radio, and he says, you know, we need a record like this that has that doon tick a a So... <laughs> <laughs> he got so, it. So what happened was when I when I heard the song I, I asked him if I could have about a half an hour to work with it. And that was my first real input into what a four seasons record would eventually be like. So then from there 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 were some other records that I thought were really pretty cool that we made. Let's hang on, working my way back to you. And then the Frankie Valley records were, were were really the most fun. My Eyes adored you was great. Uh we used the Glenn Miller sax section on on My Eyes Adored You. We used the big band on Swearing to God. <laughs> it's really, yeah. you know, we, we sort of uh, took them from a, a homegrown kind of of band into really making some really solid records. Although when I talk to Frankie now, he says, you know something, had we stayed playing on our records, we would have had more hits. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, we won't discuss that. But uh, let's discuss uh, another artist who's very connected with New York that you worked with, Laura Nero. Now, you recorded her at Columbia Studios as well, I believe. Right. That was a totally different thing in that you had... Really quirky songs with lots of tempo and feel changes. Now, how did you manage to do that in such a natural, organic way? And also, how did you get the musicians to follow her tempo and feel changes? Because you'll go from a shuffle to a to a funky thing to you know all within one song. Well,
1: by the time I went to Columbia Records, uh, I, I had pretty much found. Uh, all the musicians that I, I was working with at that time that I felt really comfortable with. I don't know um, how many people will understand this, but I know you will understand it as a as an arranger. Normally, what happens when we write arrangements as as arrangers, we wind up writing what we think is going to be the the cool thing to put on a record that's going to make it come alive. But eventually what happens is if you, once you learn how to make records, then what you have to do is you have to find out, what is gonna be right for the artist. And when you learn that technique, where you start to separate yourself from really what's cool to write, as opposed to what is really gonna be great for the song and for the artist, when you finally make that transition, then you start to become a record maker. So when I heard the Laura Nero songs, I heard the entire album played in Laura's apartment with David Geffen. I got a call from David Geffen, And he set up the meeting. We went to Laura's apartment and in her apartment she played the exact record that we eventually made. And when I heard it, I knew I had I had heard something special. So in order not to try to change the music, I took her into the studio and had her make a four track of everything I heard. Right. And that four track she also did all the background singing on it for us to get an idea as to what the backgrounds were going to be. Now, with that four-track, that was my guide for me to make the records. Then I hand-picked the musicians. The musicians that I worked with, uh, for example, Euma Cracken was on the record. He was the first guitar player that McCartney used in Wings when, when he put the band together. He was from New York. Although I was using this, the, uh, when I started, I, I used... Um, the drummer that was doing the Four Seasons records, Buddy Salzman, eventually what happened was because of the tempo changes and the style of the music, I really needed to use uh, someone who was going to be more uh, apt to go along with the way that Laura played piano. So we changed drummers, and throughout the record, I handpicked people that I thought she would interact well with so when, we, when it came time to doing the rhythm tracks, I had what I felt was a really solid group of musicians that would really play her music well. Can you talk about uh, maybe
0: just one tune, like, for instance, I mean, Eli's Coming, which has all those uh, tempo and feel changes, and, and how you actually manifested that in the studio? Well, the
1: introduction was done after the record, the organ part. The organ part uh, was an edit. okay. And that was the only song... There were two songs that she didn't play piano on. One was Eli's Coming, the other one was Farmer Joe. Uh, And the reason why she didn't play the piano was because we did the dates live. We did all the horns and the rhythm together. And I felt that by doing those records, those particular songs live, that we would get the whole feel of the record and they would sound solid because I could conduct them. So um, when we recorded Eli... She wanted it to have this energy. So what I did was I played her the name game, (laughs) strangely enough. And I said, Laura, there's something really cool about the name game. I said, I want to show you something. I said, there are two rhythms that actually make this track really unique, uh, other than the drums. And I played her the two rhythms. There was the instrumentation that I used on some of those early records were two baritone saxes and a bass trombone. And on Laura's record, I used the two baritone saxes, the bass trombone, a tenor, three trumpets, and an, and an extra trombone. So what happens, uh, I told her, I said, if I write this rhythm with the horns, I said, this is really, really going to sound energetic. And I showed her how if one part of the section played the Charleston, the bomb, 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 and I used another section going, going, uh, going, going. Bum bounce, gong, gong gong. I put the two rhythms together, and when we played the thing live, her eyes lit up. And and I, of course, I modified it from the name game because the name game was done with a smaller band. But the energy that the arrangement had in the studio fired everybody up. It and then, sure did. And, and, and then uh, uh, she she got excited about it. And she was also motivating. And you know what happens when you go into the studio. You, If the arrangement is good, the musicians recognize that there's something that's going on and they they, they sort of give you that a little extra thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'd love to talk to you for about 12 hours, but in the time that we have, I'd like to get some comments on the general New York scene. Like, for instance, why did so many different producers from all over, not only all over America, but all over the world come to New York for sweetening, which for those listeners who don't know means adding strings and brass and, stu- and flutes and stuff to, to tracks. Why did they come to New York?
1: My, my own opinion is because I think that they thought that New, New York had the best musicians. But uh, in, in, in my experience uh, with working with orchestras, I mean, my favorite place to record is London, a couple of years ago, I did a big band and string record at Sony Studios. It was the most fun I had in a long time. I just happen to think that the attitude and the players and everything else in London is the place. But in the 60s, they came to New York because most of the hit records that were being made were being made in New York. L.A. hadn't really, although they made hit records in, in L.A., they really, it wasn't really a, a record mecca. And although there were other places in the U.S. like Memphis and uh, Nashville... Uh, that, that seemed to be making records, the majority of the music was actually coming out of New York. And the reason for that is if you listen to the records of the 60s, part of the energy that was created in New York was the most of the music that they made had an R&B bass, and the musicians that were in New York were basically R&B. And it was the only place that I felt that had a, this particular sound. You know, although Detroit was doing the Motown thing, uh, they had a, a, a core group of musicians that did it. In New York, you, you had a, a, such an extensive variety of musicians that were capable of giving you that music. So I think that's one of the reasons why people came to New York.
0: Right. Um, one of my favorite things uh, that I first saw your name on was the... Uh well, of course, because, you know, uh, was the Dr. Buzzard album. Uh, Carrying on to Kid Creole, I think uh, one of the things that you did there was you blended disco with Cajun music and jazz, and you put it all in one big pot, and uh, it spelled mother. I mean, what was was your concept when you were doing those kinds of records?
1: Well, what I did on the record was I wrote the horns, and... um my longtime friend Sandy Linzer was producing the record, and uh, he was in business with Tommy Mottola, and we had made two hit records. One was a Dr. Buzzard, and the other was native New Yorker. And um, they were feeling very, very confident about what they would do with RCA, so, th- so Sandy wanted to deliver something that was totally unique, and he said, listen, I want this thing to sound like exactly what Stoney Browder hears in his mind, and he, what, he, what he hears is he hears this thing like Duke Ellington, like Hollywood, like um, the Esther Williams movies. So I want, I want you to help him create that. So when I met with Stoney, his, his name appropriately fitting him at that time. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was It's all right. I'm laughing. It's all right.
1: So uh, he, he came in and, and, and did this whole rap to me as to what he wanted. After I listened to him, I said, you know, this guy uh, really may be onto to something, so what I'm going to do, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to make this so that it fits the mold. Now, one of the things about the first record that they were never able to duplicate, and I, I found this to be really funny, because I, I really know how to write big band music, and I, I could write swing music really well, but one of the things I really was an expert at was writing horns for pop records. And although I had a big band... I didn't write it like a big band. I wrote it like a pop record. And not too many arrangers understood the difference between the figures that had to be written, even though you used the big band, and how they had to be played. So the arrangements that were written, the horn arrangements that were written for the record, changed the way that they finished the tracks. In other words, when I went to make the record, I made the record... Uh, against tracks that had already been established. After they heard the horns, they changed the tracks to fit the horns. Nice. So when I heard the she Le on the radio, I didn't even recognize it because I, I could recognize the horn parts. I said, what did they do to the rhythm? <laughs> and I said, they totally changed it. They used some weird kind of drums. But this was all Sandy and uh, and and Stoney's uh, brainchild and Darnell's.
0: Yeah, well, now I have to ask you. You, you, uh, you did so many uh, great disco records of the disco era, and uh, did you hang out in Studio Fifty Four much?
1: Well, I didn't really know what disco was. It, to me, it was music, and uh, I think I went to Studio Fifty Four twice in my life, and went to Reg- uh, Regine's on Park Avenue maybe a dozen times. But uh, you know, I was a musician. I was an arranger, and what I did was I made records. I, I I, I, I don't really like clubs unless I'm going to go hear somebody play music.
0: Well, they were so, probably playing a lot of your music there. That's the only reason I asked.
1: Well, no, no, that that was fascinating about it because I, I, I would go with uh, some of my, my friends and, and they'd say, they you know, they'd say, oh, they're playing one of your records. It's funny to go to a club and see the, the reaction to some of the records because, as you know, arrangers really don't see that. They go to the studio and they... They they make a record, and then they hear it on the radio, and they say, you know, boy, you know, it sounds good, or I didn't like this section or that. But the artists really get the feedback on a regular basis because they perform the song. So to see reaction to your music is is was always something interesting.
0: Uh, you've got the greatest Frank Sinatra story I've ever read, and I mean, uh, I'd, I'd love you to tell our listeners that story because it's just wonderful.
1: You know. Richard, if you're anything like me, uh, you spent most of your life in a little room writing music. Exactly. And, uh, and they would let you out, and you'd go into the studio, and you'd record. And in the back of your mind, you really know that Robert Farnham was the was the the the, bo- the boss. <laughs> and 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 you really knew, you know. As you look at your own music, you say to yourself, "Boy, I don't even know why they hire me." <laughs> So we all live our lives in, in like Thoreau said, in quiet desperation. And I was no different because I had absolutely no clue. When I tell you no clue, I was making a living as a musician, as an arranger. I had no idea that uh, uh, this legacy of, of records that I was making was actually going to wind up uh, uh, coming back to haunt me later on in my life. So... At the point that I met Frank Sinatra, I met him in 1969. I did the Watertown album with him. And uh, taking into consideration, I started re- making records in 62, and by 1969 I had recorded Frank Sinatra. That was in itself quite an intimidating experience. And just to give you some idea, when I was conducting the orchestra at Columbia Studios, that date started at 7 o'clock at night. At 7 o'clock, I started, and I started to run down the arrangement. We had about maybe 50 pieces in the in the studio, I was exactly 30 years old. And as I ran the arrangement down, the very first arrangement, while I was in the middle of the tune, the air changed. Hmm. And he walked in, and I didn't see him. And he walked up to the podium, he tapped me on the leg, and I had never met him. I only spoke to his people on the phone. He said, "You Colello," And I, I, I turned around, and there was Frank Sinatra standing I was on this little podium. was must have been about maybe 18 inches off the ground. I looked down, and there was Frank Sinatra. I put my hand out to shake his hand and say hello to him, and nothing came out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it was, so I said the, the, re, the reality of me being in a studio with Frank Sinatra, and I said to myself, what am I doing here? Hmm. You know, boy, you really get yourself into it this time. <laughs> so coming from that kind of a background, uh, when in 1978, I wrote two arrangements for him for his... Uh, for his show. And I went out to Vegas to conduct the orchestra. And at that point, I had produced uh, and wrote the arrangement to Stry Sands, My Heart Belongs to Me. I had produced Engelbert Humperdinck's After the Lovin'. Uh, I, had, I had a big hit record with Glenn Campbell, Southern Nights, Frankie Valley's My Eyes Adored You. And he knew all these records because Frank studied the trades every week. He read them from cover to cover. And... Um, here I was uh, n- not only a, a an arranger but an Italian arranger oh <laughs> what could be better than that So although Costa was writing for him, he also knew that uh, that he still wanted to be you know involved in, in doing pop music so he hired me to do these two arrangements and uh, I wrote the arrangements and went out to, to Vegas uh, to run the arrangements down and I got in front of the first of all they, they played the Don Costa Overture. They played, you know, six Nelson Riddle arrangements, then Billy May arrangements, and then they said, okay, Colello, you're up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Great.
1: Okay, so, so you know, I'm not feeling too good about myself because I just did wrote an arrangement on a Elton John song and a Barry Manilow song. <laughs> and, uh, you know, certainly not the same style. So at the end of running the arrangements down, Sinatra turns to me and hugs me. Great. And the musician's, are saying, who's this guy that Sinatra's hugging who wrote these arrangements? So because I didn't have a lot of visibility, they didn't know that I made these hit records with some of these other artists, nor, as you know, musicians are certainly not going to go buy pop records and figure out who the arranger was. So he evidently had great respect for me because I had done these these other records. So at the end of the rehearsal, he turns to the conductor uh, and he says, run the show. So he says, Frank, it's 6 o'clock. He says, the rehearsal's out. He says, run the show. He says, they're, they're setting up the tape. He says, run the show, damn it. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's really, uh, uh, you know, v- very, very, you know, Frank Sinatra-ish. So they, they run the entire show. They play the Don Costa Overture. They play, uh, they play Chicago, or I think they played the Ladies of Tramp. And he walked through the band and came right up to the front of the mic, front stage, grabbed the mic And started to sing so I was there with a friend of mine who's a a, a doctor and uh, we were standing stage left watching this and about uh, maybe three-quarters of the way through the song the doctor recognized something that I didn't I'm standing uh, I'm standing right next to the band I am really in seventh heaven I'm listening to all these wonderful arrangers uh, all these wonderful arrangements by all these icons that that I grew up loving and respecting, and hearing the hearing the music live the way he actually recorded it and the band was 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 wonderful. And after he did the second song, I turned to my friend and says, "Look at this! Isn't this great? I mean, we're watching Sinatra. Like he's like like 15 feet away from us. He's saying, look at the, I'm like a little kid. And the doctor turns and he says, Charlie." He says, uh, he says, calm down. <laughs> he said, uh, you know why he's doing this? I said, yeah, he's rehearsing. <laughs> he says, no, no, you, you're not getting it. I said, he's doing this for you. And the reality of it actually uh, s- started to sink in because he's singing, but yet he's looking at me. And there was like a um, something that happened at that point. I said to myself, you know, here's the biggest star in the world that everyone loves and respects, and here he is. He's doing this show for me. Why? And the doctor said, he he's looking for your approval. It made me understand something about our own talents, that, that we as individuals always do look for approval. We always want to be recognized for what it is that we do. And I sort of got the understanding that here was the greatest singer, greatest star in the world. And today I still, I love the way he sings more than anyone else in the world. He's still the greatest, greatest singer that ever lived. And he did not have the total confidence or the total, the total ingredient to say, you know, I'm really Frank Sinatra and I'm great. And I'll just add one thing that probably uh, was not in this story that uh, you read, which was I saw him uh, around 19... Um, 88 or 89 for the last time and I he was in a recording studio I was scoring a television show and he was in another room. So I wanted to say hello So uh, he said, you know, Charlie, how you doing? And we know we had some uh, uh, Conversations and I said Frank I said when are we gonna make some more records? He looked at me with real sad eyes And he says, you know, Charlie, he says I don't sing good anymore Mm. And I looked at him and I said to myself, he doesn't sing good anymore. Why doesn't he get it? Even though he didn't have the voice or the control that he had, he was still a great singer. And basically that's how all creative people, I think, really look at themselves. They live their lives in quiet desperation.
0: Mm. Well, it's a great story, Charlie. And I think we are going to have to call it a, a, an evening or a morning for you. And, and I can't thank you enough for, for coming, coming in and talking to us.
1: Well, I enjoyed it. And uh, for just, I just would like to add this anybody who's really considering becoming an arranger, if you look at the kind of fun that we had in our lifetime, uh, don't ever stop pursuing your dream because it's something certainly worthwhile.
0: Well, that's a very New York sentiment uh, to end on. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Charlie. Radio Richard.